Good morning. We are in for a treat this morning. I've had a chance to sit with Dean Stam, and he's engaging, he's provocative, he's very exciting. So I'm delighted to introduce him today to you all. Alan Stam began his term as Dean of the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy and, and Professor of Public Policy in 2014. He came to UVA from the University of Michigan, where he received his MA and PhD, served as a professor, and was the director of the International Policy Center at the Gerald Ford School of Public Policy. Dean Stam has held teaching positions at Dartmouth College, Harvard, Yale, and American universities. Identified as one of the nation's leading scholars of leadership with a personal record of elite military service, his teaching and research focuses on international conflict, war outcomes, and global politics. Before completing his undergraduate degree at Cornell, he served as a communications specialist in the U.S. Army Special Forces and later in the U.S. Army Reserves. Dean Stam holds a U.S. government top secret clearance. Dean Stam is also a well-respected author, and his books have included Win, Lose, or Draw, Democracies at War, and his latest publication is titled why Leaders Fight, which we do have available today after the presentation from the University of Virginia Bookstore. Please join me in welcoming Dean Allen Stam to More Than the Score. Thanks very much. Well, good morning, everybody. First of all, thanks for coming out at 10 o'clock in the morning on a gorgeous day when the football game's not until 3.30 in the afternoon. Um, my associate dean, Bill Ashby, as I was walking up, sent me a text message. He said, are you coming? <laughs> and I said, yes, yes, I'll be there. I wouldn't miss it for the world. I, it is a pleasure, and, but more importantly, a real honor to be able to talk with you. Many of you are alumni of, and alumni of the university. It's just a real privilege to be able to talk to you on a day like today, homecomings, but also to be able to talk to you about leadership. It is a humbling experience to be somebody that purports to be, as my introduction said, an expert in leadership uh, at the university that essentially is the university of leadership. Uh, it was founded by one of the, not just America's or the states, but one of the world's greatest leaders. You know? and so that is something that gives all of us a little bit of pause. So I'm going to start off, I want to talk, to, talk about a couple of things. Um, the book that I've written with a couple of colleagues is about a very narrow, specific topic. And part of that is because we're social scientists and we specialize in really narrow, nailing things down. Because if we don't, our academic colleagues will come after us with you know, pitchforks and machetes. But I want to talk about some little broader things. I want to talk about first, what is leadership? Uh, and then why we should care about it. Um, oddly, in many of the circles where we would think that leadership is something that should be valued and studied most closely, it's in fact deeply discounted both in terms of the role and effectiveness and importance of leaders in leadership, but also our ability to have any systematic understanding about that. Part of the purpose of our book is to attempt to try and change the direction of academic uh, discussion, or what academics would refer to in a little bit more sort of hoity-toity fashion as discourse. Um, by way of doing that, I'm going to tell a little bit, of, provide a little history about how we got to where we are in the academy today, in academics, where, as I said, leadership tends to be discounted. Um, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about the book itself, some of the findings, because I think we did actually find some pretty interesting stuff. Um, <clears throat> so for starters, what is leadership? 
Uh, when I took the job a year ago as dean of a school of leadership, the first thing I did was I had everybody on my faculty and the staff and administration of the school come in and sat, we sat, sat down for about an hour. And the first question I asked everybody was, so, what's leadership? And some people had a good answer, but I would say the modal person looked at me and said, well, you know, it's complicated. It's tricky. A lot of things that go into that. So after a week, I had a giant poster made up to go on my office wall. Sums it up in one sentence. Leadership is the art of getting things done. Full stop. That's what it is. Now, as Bill Clinton said about being elected president of the United States, it's simple, but not easy. <laughs> I'll leave that one where it lays. Um, <clears throat> so, this notion, though, that leadership is the art of getting things done actually ends up implying that there's two aspects to leadership. The first part is execution or implementation, the accomplishing tasks. The second part is, that's implied, is the question, which things? Whose ideas? Which ideas? Which visions? Now, Schools of public policy, academics that run, you know, so basically universities in America today are, for the great majority part, run by, led by academics. And so I think it's relevant to talk about how academia focuses on leadership if we want to understand institutions of higher learning. So which things in higher education, social scientists, have simply focused on efficiency for the better part of the last 40 to 50 years? Economists have driven this discussion, shaped it. They're not the ones solely responsible or should be held fully accountable, but they've shaped this discussion. And economists in the sort of the neoclassical modern notion all focuses on efficiency, market efficiencies. But that leaves out a lot of stuff that the rest of us think really matter. Judgment, free will, morality, ethics, all of those other things that may be outside of our models of efficiency are what most of the rest of us think of as the critical core of the question, which things. Now on the execution side, well that's interesting too. The three areas that sort of intuitively get leadership most, business, athletics, the military, and I would say parenthetically, what distinguishes those three general core pillars of our society, they keep score. We tend not to keep score so much in higher education. Uh, those three areas, though, they get it about leadership. And they believe that, essentially, on the execution side, leader quality, character, these are the greatest force multipliers and determinants of outcomes that we know about. If you want to look at the distinctions between successful organizations and unsuccessful ones, a good place to start, it's not the only explanation by any means, but a good place to start is to look at the nature and character of their leadership. Now interestingly, the American people get this. Why on earth would we be already a year before our next presidential election be focusing on debates, discussions perhaps, uh, friendly interrogations, uh, of our potential future leaders. Because we care, because we understand that leaders matter. 
Now, <clears throat> on the choice side, which things, what directions, you can't lead if you don't know where you want to go. Part of the whole thing, you know, so in the military, there's this great statue in front of the infantry school in Fort Benning, Georgia. There's this guy whose nickname is Iron Mike. He's made out of bronze, but they call him Iron Mike. Okay? And he's going like this. And at the base of it says, follow me. Well, the whole presumption of that statue is that this guy knows where he wants to go. Well, if you don't know where you want to go, if you don't have a vision, if you can't articulate where it is we're supposed to be going, you can't lead. Now, variation across leaders, and there, this will be a little, we'll go delve into academia discourse here. The heterogeneity across their preferences, how their differences, that matters incredibly for understanding the different directions that organizations are going to go in. Businesses, athletic departments, universities, communities, states, countries. These are the most powerful explanatory factors we have as a social scientist in our tool bag of explanation. Now, you might say to yourself, as my mother says to me all the time, she says, what are you working on these days? And I'll tell her as a, from an academic perspective. She goes, that's kind of silly. I already know the answer. I'm like, well, Ms. Smarty Pants, I don't see you as a tenured professor. And she says, well, I'm not sure I'd tell that to everybody. <laughs> So, because here's the puzzle. In many of the circles today that I swim around in, leadership, the need to study it, appreciate it, and understand it are deeply discounted. Our own university president, this is not a criticism of Terry Sullivan, it's an observation. She is, of, she is an outstanding example of a type. She's a sociologist by training and inclination. She's very skeptical about the role of individual leaders. And this is reflective more of her academic discipline than of her as a particular leader. She gave an interview this last spring in Fortune magazine. You could, it's a great interview. and It's a great discussion of some of the challenges that the university as a whole has had to deal with over the past year. And in the interview, she discounts the importance of leaders, herself included. She says, and I quote, sociologists are very suspicious of biographical explanations of leadership. It's a mistake to see Leadership as a function of the individual. Well, again, so this is not so much about Terry Sullivan per se, but rather where we are in the social sciences. Now, I'm the dean of the School of Leadership. Puts me in a... So far. Precisely. <laughs> the... Uh, that could cut two ways. <laughs> I could be looking forward, or I could be looking backwards. <laughs> I gave a talk about leadership uh, about six months ago, and um, one of my senior colleagues in the administration did say to me in the middle of the talk, he says, you do know your boss is in the room, don't you? <laughs> and I said, yes. And she and I have spoken about this many times. And it's part of it is a, an honest intellectual disagreement, discussion about the role of communities, societies, and frankly, our academic disciplines really shape how we think about things. Part of that, that's what our book is about. It's about how skepticism about biographical explanations notwithstanding, how our early life events, experiences, profoundly shape our behavior and actions as adults. Now, how many people, raise your hand in this room if you're a parent. 
Every parent in the room understands that early life experiences and education affect people's behavior and actions as adults. I think that when people become professors sometimes, they take their, well, I'm a parent, and I know that raising my kids is important hat off and stow it until they go home. And then all of a sudden they go back to understanding that the environment and the experiences of young people profoundly shape their behavior as adults. Now, as a dean of school of leadership, in this environment, it's challenging. Now, as I said before, I said, you know, military, business, and athletics. Um, people in my introduction, they always talk about military service, my academic books. The thing that I'm most proud of as a young person was earning a varsity letter in heavyweight crew at Cornell University, rowing in the United States National Championships. For me, that is my proudest moment, and here's why. In high school, I tried out for six different sports and was cut from every single team, except for one, chess team. <laughs> I didn't like chess. So I tried out for the math team, and I ended up being all-county math. So when I, after going in the military, got a little taller, put on a few pounds of muscle, I ended up rowing. And so we had these hometown news release things we had to do, and we had to put our varsity sports from high school and so I put down chess club, math team, all county. This guy that I'm rowing with, now he was an all-American AAU swimmer and rower in high school. He looks at that and he says, Al, he grabs a piece of paper, he goes, you can't tell people that. <laughs> so it's not like I came out of high school and being a kid being a sort of a star athlete. Rather, I was a terrible athlete who was a little bit smarter than average, and they figured out if I worked my butt off, I had a little self-edit there for a second, <clears throat> that, in fact, I could really accomplish something. And one of the reasons why I was able to be a successful oarsman is because it's a team sport. There's nine guys in a boat, eight of them going backwards, one of them looking forward. The eight guys going backwards have to do everything exactly the same as the other seven people in the boat. As numerous coaches have told me, an eight-man shell with eight guys rowing badly together beats a boat of eight guys rowing great, but differentially, every single time. So for me, that experience, that outcome, that learning that you know, if you persist, if you work hard, that you can transform yourself from one thing into another, that you can be part of a team, even if you're not great at it, but if everybody on that team individually throws in with the group, we can accomplish extraordinary things. That, for me, was the most salient lesson of one of my early life's set of experiences. Now, I took the job as dean of the School of Leadership because, obviously, because I believe in leadership. I think that we can all make a difference, but that individuals that help guide our teams, shape our teams, bring our teams together, can have a profound influence. And I saw this as was as I said before, a great honor and an extraordinary opportunity. Now, it's true, the University of Virginia owes its existence to the efforts of every employee that served, whether enslaved or free, to build the buildings that make up our university. At the same time, all of those individuals could have been replaced. Their labor. Labor matters. Labor is critical. We can't do anything great without great labor. But there was no one bricklayer 
without whom this university could not have been constructed. There was one man without whom this university and its vision would never have emerged, and that was Thomas Jefferson. Leaders matter. People matter. The team together, but the leaders in the team interact in incredibly powerful ways. And for some reason today in our society, we discount this a little bit. I have some thoughts about that. Now, <clears throat> as I said, many in academia are skeptical of the role of leaders. How did we get here? Well, university leadership, the most common academic disciplines from which presidents and provosts of universities are drawn, for example, are sociology and chemistry. Um, I don't know much about chemists. Uh, I wanted to be one, and it didn't work out. That's how I ended up in the Army. Um, you can figure that out for yourself. <laughs> but so I spent a lot of time studying economics, political science, took some sociology classes. And one of the things that came through in studying those disciplines was that the role of individuals, the role of people, frankly, is discounted highly or outright denying the role of them. And so, as my colleague Mike Horowitz and I, and then later Callie Ellis, who joined us on the project, started thinking about leaders and leadership, we had to ask the question, answer, like, how did we get here? Well, it's a good question. It's an interesting one. And it's an interesting intellectual history puzzle. It comes out of the events leading up to and during World War II. And we can basically pin it on one guy, interestingly enough. The guy's name is John von Neumann. John von Neumann is probably, you know, we could fight about this all day. My friends fight about, like, who's the best quarterback of the night, you know, last 10 years, Tom Brady. <clears throat> Go Brady. Um, we could talk about, like, who's the best mathematician, who's the best scientist. Um, I'll make a case for John von Neumann. Von Neumann made more contributions in more areas than any other scientist of the last, I don't know, 2,000 years. Areas of particular importance for our discussion about leaders and leadership, nuclear weapons. Von Neumann was the guy that did the mathematical calculations that showed that the implosion method of detonating a nuclear weapon would be the most efficient. The United States had a big problem. We didn't have enough highly enriched uranium to actually produce a lot of weapons. Von Neumann and others figured out, oh, wait, there's a more efficient way to make use of that material. He did the calculations that proved that it could be done and under what conditions. He also wasn't just an egghead in that area, though. He was also, he worked with the project manager to get it done. Most of his colleagues disagreed with von Neumann in that area about the theory there and said, no, 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 we have to pursue the simpler path even if it means more time. Von Neumann said, we don't have time. World War II is raging. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people are dying. We cannot wait. This is the right path. You have to trust me. And everybody at the end of the day said, well, you know, Edward Teller said this guy's way smarter than Edward Teller. So he must be right. Turns out he was. That work on nuclear weapons, though, led to what became known in the nuclear age as mutually assured destruction, MAD, a term von Neumann coined. Mutually assured destruction means, you know, I have the capacity to destroy you totally. And you have the capacity to destroy me totally. So there's no point in us even having an argument about having a war. Because if we do have a war, it's all over. Like, all over. And it being the planet. So in that sense of the world, the mad world, power is no longer the way classical realists talk about power, nuance, leadership, moral fiber, character. Power is binary. Either you got 500 strategic nuclear weapons or you don't. If you do, it doesn't really matter. 
whether you got great leadership or not. Second area was game theory. Before von Neumann, von Neumann single-handedly invented what economists today refer to as game theory. There were others that made some early contributions, but on the math side, von Neumann was the guy that did all the work and did the proofs. Here's a, I think we learn best by story. So I was at the NSA, the National Security Administration, about a year ago, and I was working with the chief public affairs officer for the director to bring some academics in to talk to people there, uh, sort of post-Edward Snowden, because academics think the NSA is horrible. Um, and they actually do some good work for the security of our country, but we won't get into that. This is a better story. So we're there, and the head of the R&D, it's pretty high up in the organization, he's explaining to us all these awesome capabilities in the context of legal authorities that the NSA has. And one example he gave was the ability to tap the phones of the participants at the European Union trade negotiations and provide information to Barack Obama and his negotiators in real time. Now, so what this meant was that the NSA was wiretapping Andre Merkel's cell phone. So one of my colleagues who's a game theorist, where game theorists are really interested in strategic interaction as opposed to uh, optimization problems, my colleague says to this director, he said, you know, just because you could do it, did it ever occur to you that it might not be a good idea to do it? Well, this guy that's at the very high up in the NSA says, you know, that's a great question, but we're all engineers. <laughs> we don't think about problems that way. Well, von Neumann was the guy that did the work that led to economists thinking about things in strategic terms. I know that you know that you know that I know, and so forth. Now, to solve that problem of infinite regress, von Neumann and others had to make some really powerful assumptions. Because in a repeated game, pretty much anything can happen. And that's not interesting. And most of the equilibrium that merged there aren't interesting. So von Neumann made some really strong assumptions to come up with some solution concepts that allow us to make useful predictions. There's problems, though. Second area he made, third area he made big contributions was in econometrics. Econometrics is the statistical set of tools that allow us, it's one of the big tools we use in our book, for example, it allows us to talk about the effect of one character attribute variable, leadership, leaders, while holding constant other factors, like the balance of power, uh, institutional democracy, geographic distance, a bunch of things like that. It became the, the most powerful tool for macroeconomists to be able to study our economies. Von Neumann was the guy that worked out the math that enabled econometrics to actually be functionally possible. Fourth big area, and again, it's really hard. These are like four out of 20 things, all of the same size. Von Neumann is the guy that invented the modern computer. You're like, no, that was Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is a really smart guy, but he doesn't know dookie about computers, <laughs> how they actually function. Steve Jobs doesn't program. What von Neumann did was figured out that we could take logical operators like if, then, and, or, and translate those into hexadecimal or binary mathematical code. That the natural language operators have numerical equivalents, and he could prove those equivalencies. Once we can make the translation to logical conceptual differences into mathematical differences, then we can code that into a computer and we can store <clears throat> on 
memory, what we think of as our hard drive today, information, as well as those operators. Well, this is an incredible breakthrough. But this allows us to do a couple of things. It allows us now to be able to take huge amounts of data. In our book, okay, we have 2,400 liters, 130 years, 45 different variables that we coded data on. That's 14 million pieces of data that we analyze in that book. Well, we could never have done that without computers. Couldn't have done that with a pencil and paper. The computer makes that possible, but at the same time, the computer requires us to be able to translate, measure things that are very subtle, human interactions, and translate those into digits. Now, von Neumann proved mathematically that that's possible, subject to a whole raft of assumptions. The assumptions may or may not be tenable. But again, so these combinations, computers, econometrics, game theory, and nuclear weapons, transform the social sciences after World War II. It goes from being political economy, diplomacy, history, strategy, where deep thought about the nature of human interaction and leadership is what drives our policy recommendations to data, efficiency, computation, cost-benefit analysis. And in that world, there is no place for leaders or leadership. Until now. Because, you know, again, I rode, I was in the military, my dad tried to start numerous businesses as a private businessman, failed. But it was a great learning lesson for me. Ooh, get a safe job, get tenure. Um, <laughs> wow. Don't repeat the mistakes of our forefathers, you know? <laughs> Get a job. Uh, I tell my sons, I say this to my middle son, who's a junior at the University of Michigan. I said, so, you know, like, what are you best at? What do you love most? What's your passion? He says, I love watching SportsCenter. <laughs> I said, whoa. All right, so maybe pursuing your passion isn't what you need to do solely. <laughs> He's going to go into healthcare administration and be very successful. But, so we have these trends that come out, and, but I knew intuitively, it's like all of us in this room know intuitively, individual people matter in our teams and the leaders matter even more. But we had to figure out how to show it, to demonstrate it on their terms. Basically, we had to go using these tools, computers, econometrics, game theory. We had to be able to say, show, demonstrate, leaders matter using your data, your tools. And so that's what we did. That's what that book is about. So going back to what I said before about leaders and leadership, there's execution and implementation, and there's which things. What we wanted to show was it's on the which things side, the choices leaders make. So we wanted, so we talked to, I have to say the genesis of the book is not, <clears throat> stories are good, but the genesis of the project actually had nothing to do with leadership. Because when I started this project 10 years ago, I was like everybody else. I had my like, private me, and I had my academic me. And my private me knew all this stuff I've just been saying to you for the last 15 minutes. But my academic me was caught up in the world of game theory, econometrics, computers. And I was like, yeah, leaders, whatever. Structure of the system is what matters. How many nuclear weapons? Throw away, bus wave, that's what matters. But a, 10 years ago, Michael Horowitz, who was at the time a graduate student at Harvard University, calls me up at about 4 in the afternoon on a Friday. And he says, Al, I need some help. 
And I said, sure, what you, what's going on, Mike? He says, well, I got this uh, assignment that's due Monday. And I was like, oh, God, man, you're in graduate school. It's not supposed to keep happening. And he says, yeah, you know, we had the assignment all semester. He says, I thought it was going to be easy, but I can't figure it out. Maybe you can help. I said, sure. So his assignment was come up with a research design to test some political psychology proposition. So I said, well, that's not hard. Let's think about this for a minute. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking. All I think about is war. You know, my office is like just the, the horror chamber of bad karma. There's 2,000 books about people killing people. So I'm looking around the wall, getting, looking for inspiration from these books, and I realize, wait a minute, states go to war. War's decisions are predicated on the in choice of individuals. Most of those individuals are men. Some are younger, some are older. What do we know about men that are younger and older? Testosterone. Testosterone declines as you get older. Testosterone is the aggression hormone. So older leaders should be less aggressive. States led by older leaders should attack their neighbors less than states led by younger leaders. So I say, Mike, how's that sound for a hypothesis? He's like, hang on a second, I'm still writing. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes, that sounds good. I go, I have no idea how you're going to test it. That's your problem. I got to go. I got to go row. <laughs> so I hang up the phone. A week later, he calls me up. He goes, Al, I got an A+. Plus. Professor says we should do it. And I said, all right, well, let's figure that out. So I called some friends that were working on institutional explanations of leader behavior. And I said, hey, do you guys have a list of international leaders? And they said, yeah. So they sent us the list. So then I look at this list, and it's just a list of names and country codes, the numbers associated with particular countries. So I said, well, what are we going to do now? I said, age. I've got to find somebody that does leader age. So it turns out there's this guy, Nicholas Vanduel, who studies Africa who had put together a list of the age of all African leaders in the 20th century. So I called Nick up. Turned out he was a dean at that point. I didn't know. And I said, oh, Dean Nick, can I have your data since you're not going to do any academic research anymore? <laughs> and he said, absolutely. An hour later, computers, there's the data file on my desk. So we put those together. We hire a couple of kids to fill out the rest of the data. And we look at leader age. Now, some smarter people than us, one of the things, we're not smart, but boy, we are pig-headed. And once we get that bit in our teeth, we don't stop. But some other people said, fellas, come on. <clears throat> Institutions matter. Dictatorships, democracies, maybe there's a difference. You know, the Constitution of the United States has that provision. You've got to be 35 to be president. So we said, all right, all right, all right. Get some data on institutions. So then we set up this interaction between leader age, institutions, and then leader age and institutions interacted so that we could control for those using this von Neumann tool of computers and econometrics. Heaven for Betsy. It worked. So we published a paper on this. People all over started writing to us. They're like, that's fascinating. It never would have occurred to us. I was like, well, frankly, it hadn't occurred to me either. <laughs> Give all the credit to Mike Horowitz. Mike Horowitz says, it's his idea, not mine. So, we meet some psychologists and they say, these people call us up and they say, hey, you guys are the first people in your discipline finally to produce a paper that shows systematically leaders and their attributes matter. Don't stop. We're like, what do you mean don't stop? We never started. This was like a sideline. So we sit down with some psychologists and I say to them, I said, all right, if you were like tasked with finding out what would affect adult behavior, are there things that we could observe that wouldn't be subjective? Because we want, if we're going to do this, like age is good, because we can't argue much about age. We argue a little at the margins, but you know, everybody's, you know, everybody's 49 until they're 59. But <clears throat> we wanted objective things, like when you died, 
how many siblings you had. Had you served in the military? And so we talked to psychologists, and they said, well, actually, you know, there's a whole literature on this. We're like, see, we're not smart, but we're persistent. And so we read all this psychology stuff, and we came up with a list of things that should matter, that back in the day, when all of us were children, our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents said, these are character-building experiences. Today, many of them are considered traumatic. <clears throat> <laughs> You know, like having to wait alone for the bus. It, I was six years old my first day at the bus stop. It was terrifying. You know, get on the bus. We had just moved. Moving at an early age, you know, builds character back in the day. Today, oh, the poor dears. We can't move. It'll traumatize them. So my father, in pursuit of better options, had moved us around a couple of times. First day of school in a new place. Get on the bus. Terrifying. Don't know anybody. End of the day. Bus driver forgets he has two new kids on the bus, me six, my older sister eight, and he just drives past our bus stop, gets to the end of his route and says, what are you doing here, kids? Get out. So there we are. I remember that to this day, <laughs> 47 years later. But my sister, she's like crying. She's in tears. She's like, what are we going to do? I don't have a cell phone yet. <laughs> I can't text mom. I'm like, wow, you are brilliant. Write that down. It'll be useful in 40 years. I said, look, the bus didn't make any turns. Let's just go walk in that direction. Eventually, we'll find our house. Hour and a half later, it was, turns out it was pretty far, and we were six and eight. All of a sudden, there's my mom standing in the middle of the road in tears, like, where have you been? Now, today, I don't know, somebody would have gotten sued, I suppose. Bus driver would have lost her job. My father shows up at home, a nice story gets sold at the dinner table. He's like, good, builds character. <laughs> It did. So psychologists have understood this, though, that there are early life experiences that shape our attitudes as adults. Now, something like the bus story, not useful to us as social scientists, because we need to know everybody's bus story, all these leaders. So we settled on things like military service, where your parents divorced. Did you get divorced? Uh, if you talk to people whose parents were divorced or they get divorced, it was one of the most salient events in their young lives, adult lives. Uh, education. Did you go to elementary school? Did you go to college? Did you go to graduate school? Did you study economics? <laughs> now, I've studied a ton of economics, don't get me wrong, but it does have a profound, there's a lot of studies on this actually, a profound shape on people's preferences and attitudes. So we collect all this data, <clears throat> mash it all together, and it turns out, using this tool of econometrics, we can compare the relative explanatory power of these early life experiences and the vessels through which those experiences are enacted, the leaders, and compare that to all the other explanations political scientists that study international war have said really matter. And it turns out, lo and behold, victory for people. People matter. Leaders matter. And they matter more. They matter more than the balance of power. They matter more than the democratic peace. They matter more than the alliance structure in which your country is embedded. Those things matter. Don't get me wrong. But we have been ignoring, we, me, like my colleagues and I, have been ignoring the most important aspect of the international system, our leaders. And one of the things that's kind of cool is, <clears throat> so I'm the dean of leadership embedded in a public policy school. So, you know, could be a little awkward. But remember, you may remember this. Some of you are young enough to remember Mad Magazine. 
and it had the cover of Alfred E. Newman. And the line underneath it was, what, me? Worry? <laughs> it's my favorite line. <laughs> my associate dean constantly says to me, he goes, are you sure this is going to work out? I said, don't worry. It'll be fine. So <clears throat> one of the things that's challenging, we've got to understand, we need to sort of change the direction of our schools. We need to change the directions a little bit of our universities. But to, again, you know, there's that line that I can't remember who to attribute it to. People that don't know their history are condemned to repeat their mistakes. You know, so we got to know how we got here. Ah, Santiana. I only have partially a liberal arts education. <laughs> I didn't get that part. So, but I did take a class on Shakespeare. Well, there you go. See, that teamwork. So he read Santiana, and I read Shakespeare. We're good to go. Now, so policy schools, we shape sort of three kinds of people. We shape young people that want to go work in the government. We shape people that want to work in the private sector, private sector firms that will have public sector practices, and people that want to do well by doing good. That's essentially our constituencies in public policy schools. Public policy schools haven't always been this way, though. They started out in the 1920s producing a degree called an MPA, Masters of Public Administration, which was the public sector equivalent of the MBA, the Masters of Business Administration. People that set up MPA schools thought bureaucracies in the public sector are somehow different than bureaucracies in the private sector. So they have a separate degree. In the 1960s, sort of best uh, example there would be Robert McNamara. There's a group of people that came along that said, hey, look, these, these bureaucracies, these administrations need to use more data. They need to make the decisions based on data. The Ford Foundation gave huge block grants to universities to set up new academic programs. So this, the public policy school at, at UC Berkeley, for example, was founded in the early 1960s on the basis of a Ford Foundation block grant. Now, the disciplines that make up these schools are economics, political science, and sociologists. The University of Virginia School of Leadership being an exception. We'll get to that in a second. Now, people, leaders. For economics, not so much so. Markets. Markets matter. Uh, if we think about uh, the macroeconomists modeling the economy, there's no people in that model. You know, Y equals function not people. Uh, microeconomics, consumer behavior, they're interested in the distribution of consumer behavior. They're interested in the uh, method of moments where the big interest is in the mean or the median, but typically the mean and the variance around that. No individuals in that. Political scientists, they used to talk about leaders and individuals, not so much though. Now they talk about institutions. And most political scientists believe that there are no individuals out there that could actually stand up to the constraining power of institutions and situational pressures. So for example, a very, very famous and important international relations scholar at Columbia University, a guy named Bob Jervis, um, he wrote a paper about five years ago making the argument that had Al Gore been elected president, the United States still would have ended up in the war in Iraq in 2003 in exactly the same fashion. Because leaders don't matter. I was like, did you vote? <laughs> Do you have guilt? <laughs> Wouldn't have mattered anyways. So political scientists, you know, if we think about voting, from a political science perspective, individ the individual choice to vote is irrational. Shouldn't even bother voting. 
Why? Because your one vote, the odds that your individual vote will determine the outcome of the election is asymptotically approaching zero. It's not free to walk down the street to the voting booth. There's a better way to make use of your time. So another story. So I'm an assistant professor at Yale University. I like to bike to work because I like to stay fit. I like to ride my bike. I'm part of a group of people that bike, ride their bikes. I get a flat on my way to work. So I'm sitting there in my office fixing the flat because I can't ride home until I fix the flat. This very eminent economist, whose name will go not be mentioned, walks by my office. He looks in. He says, hey, Al, what are you doing? I said, uh, Doug, what does it look like I'm doing? He says, I have no idea what you're doing. And I said, I'm fixing my freaking flat, Doug. Now this guy, he's like 60, so you can see I have a problem with authority. I'm at 31 at the time. And he says, why are you fixing it? And I said, well, Doug, because I can't ride home on a flat tire. He says, "That's no, 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 no. Why aren't you paying somebody to fix it? It's a more efficient use of your time to hire somebody to fix the tire. I said, Doug, get out of my office. This is like the stupidest thing I've heard all day. I'm part of a group of people. We ride bikes. We fix our tires. We take pride in being able to take care of ourselves. It's like, that is so inefficient. And he walks off stunned. And I walk off in the other direction stunned also. Like, whoa, how did we get to this place where the things, the little, the little bits and pieces of our lives that matter most end up being swamped out in the error term? Now, the third group of social scientists that make up these policy schools are sociologists. Now, sociologists, it's very interesting. It was a, there was a profound shift in sociologists. Max Weber, late 19th century sociologist, one of the most, he wrote, great, he wrote great books about the importance of work, books about the importance of the Protestant ethic. You know, and this was, he was thinking about how these societal factors shape our interests and behaviors as individuals, and then individuals aggregate back together again to shape society. Post-World War II, that very nuanced notion in some ways got lost. Sort of uh, neo-Marxism sort of perfuses this, and class-based analysis, social movements are what sociologists become all about. And the argument there then becomes no individual is powerful enough to stand up to the pressures of social or economic class. Because the interests of class, whether it's economic, social, academic, or whatever, are so powerful, no individual could be expected to stand up to that. Social movements in the 1960s reinforced that. I was at a talk about six months ago here at the University of Virginia talking about the original sort of Million Man March, Martin Luther King's address to the mall in 1963. And the person was a sociologist giving the talk, and she said, you know, the most important thing about the civil rights movement was not Martin Luther King. It was the individuals that showed up on the mall. And I want to say, well, yeah, but had it not been for Dr. King, I'm not so sure those people would have showed up on the mall. <laughs> it was the individual leader and his team of people that brought those people together, that held them together, that made decisions that helped mobilize that raft of humanity that forced change. Absent the individual leadership, though, a movement is a mob. And a mob is a destructive force, not a progressive force. So that's the context in these schools that we have today, the context in schools in which this book is written. What we're trying to do is essentially shift the oil tanker that is 
higher education, the academy, academia, by appealing to graduate students, young people. Young people are the solution to everything. All of our problems will be solved by young people. You know, basically, we had our shot, we failed. So, that's nah, too pessimistic. We made a difference, um, but we're not done. We didn't finish the job. Is that better? Is that a little better? Not quite so pessimistic? Young people are going to solve these problems. They're going to address them. But we need to sort of help show them where some of the mistakes of prior generations lie. And that's what we're hoping to do with this book. So let me get to the end of it. What do we find? Leaders matter, did that, matter a lot. Things that matter most in the context. So what we focus on in this book is, so again, you know, we wanted to make the hardest case possible. Individual leaders in highly constraining institutional settings, decisions that require the mobilization of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. So again, really consequential choices. High stakes, where if you screw it up, you're going to be punished badly. Decision to go to war. Attack your neighbors. And fortunately, it's pretty objective. You either do it or you don't. Okay? So we find that military service, our education, our relationships with our parents, rivalries with our siblings, extended travel abroad, our parents or our own divorces, all these things that occurred in these people's early lives profoundly shape these leaders, what psychologists refer to as disinhibition. So like, uh, if we go to a party, have a few drinks, most of us do not put the lampshade on our head. Why? Because we're still inhibited. We feel we don't want to stand out from the group. There are individuals, though, in settings that will put the lampshade on their head. They don't feel that group inhibition as an individual. So our index shows that some people are more risk-averse, risk-acceptant, disinhibited than others. Now, we have some interesting, cool little findings that we didn't anticipate at the beginning. Leader attributes, like risk acceptance, can also be a systemic attribute. So if we look at the average level of leader risk acceptance in the interwar period between World War I and World War II, it's at an all-time low. And what happens is, so you have this mean level of risk aversion, and a couple of very risk acceptant individuals come in. Hitler, Tojo, Mussolini, Stalin. Five individuals in that period transform the course of human history. And they're able to do so in large part because when they get started, they're interacting with people that are really risk averse. So my co-author and I, we were talking about this the other day. And I was like, crap, you know what we got to do? I didn't say that. Sorry for the camera. Um, I said, gosh darn it. You know what we need to do? We need to look at our own. We'd, we'd never like, sort of turn the lens on ourselves and said, which one of us is the risk acceptant and risk averse one? And it turns out Mike is quite risk averse according to our data, and I'm very risk acceptant. And that makes for a great team, though, because I'm the one with the crazy bold ideas, and he's the one that says, are you sure? You think that's going to work? Let's nail down the details. Well, in the early 1930s, you had these individuals that weren't constrained. They were in dictatorships, and they managed to profoundly affect the system. Now, what's fascinating today we look at American Congress. American Congress today, we have one of these key indicators of military service. 6% of American members of Congress served in the military today. It's the lowest in American history. 
since the founding of the Republic. Now, our great leader, Thomas Jefferson, is not a, not a good example in this regard. Uh, he was <clears throat> they didn't have a draft so much, but he did not serve. Um, he was not such a good governor either. He was more of a visionary. We'll leave it at that. Uh, our system today, the international system, is characterized by risk-averse leaders. Um, I think it's something to think about. You know, when uh, we think about this election coming up, who are the pres who are the candidates that are risk-averse and risk-acceptant? Would you be Would you like to hear a little bit about the candidates? Sure. I knew. So I told Mike, I was like, damn it, I got to give this talk. I need those data now. <clears throat> All right, so I want you to think for a second. So we've had these two, we've now had a Democratic debate and a couple of Republican debates. Um, we've had, were there five Democrats in the last one? I think there were a dozen and 11 in the last Republican one. Think to yourself of all those people who, and this is in a context. Okay, so remember, the context we're talking about in our book and our data is the decision to use military force, not which may or may not be correlated with risk acceptance in, say, economic or business areas or social areas. This is just military, okay? Most risk acceptant guy, 90th percentile in the world right now. Lindsey Graham, who said, who said Graham? Dead on, yeah. Lowest risk of all of these people, Rand Paul, super risk averse. People in the middle, John Kasich, Joe Biden, he's not really in it, but he's, he's kind of in it, but he's not really in it. <clears throat> Maybe if he was higher on the list, he'd be in it. Now, Donald Trump, Donald Trump's a really interesting one. So in the system, Americans tend to be more risk acceptant than people outside the rest of the world. So in the world context, Donald Trump is about 70th percentile. In the American context, he's in the 30th percentile. Now, think, you say to yourself, wait a minute, is that Donald Trump with the hairdo? He's crazy. Well, maybe. He's really risk acceptant in the domain of business, real estate dealing. It's not clear whether that's the same as in the domain of the use of violence and force. Jim Webb, high or low? Crazy. <laughs> He's a great guy, but uh, I don't think telling stories about killing people in a democratic debate was probably a good idea. Um, let's see. All right, here's a good one. Ted Cruz, high or low? Low. Low. Again. It's domain specific. This is one of the things that, this is one of the areas where data can actually be a very powerful tool for us. Because if we think about things, sort of our intuitions will, we, we tend cognitively, our brains, we're lumpers. But in fact, the world is incredibly heterogeneous. So, Marco Rubio, low. Again, high risk domestically, low internationally. We, would, we could, based on our data, and again, it's just data, you know. I don't have a whole lot invested in it other than my career. The, <clears throat> well, I don't have my job invested in it. That's a good thing. <laughs> so Rubio, there's a whole group of these people that are willing to take great chances in specific domains. Outside, Mike Huckabee, John Kerry, Carly Fiorina, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, high risk when it comes to foreign policy, according to our data. Bernie, it's true. Bernie's a little angry. 
I thought he was very compelling, though. It's like, you know, if I was going to vote for a socialist, he would be my socialist. <laughs> so I think I'll stop there. We got time for. <laughs> I'll leave that question hanging. <laughs> Maybe we have time for some questions. The football game's not till 3 30, so. Yeah, in the front here. Right here? They're going to bring you your microphone, so hold off. I'll take a little drink of coffee here in the meantime. Over the years, I've uh, worked with a lot of executives in different capacities. And um, one thing I've noticed, especially in the business environment, that a lot of the heads of corporations um, seem to have, uh, not all of them, but a certain percentage of them, a higher percentage, seem to have a void of conscience. A void of? Conscience. Mm. And actually, it was a professor from your business school that gave a talk relating to that. And he did a study on it. This was about 10 years ago. And I was in the, in the meeting, so I caught him after the, the thing. Anyway, long story short, what he said was, actually, I, I did an in-depth study on that. And it's true. And I said, why, why is that? Why do they seem to have a void of conscience? He said, because a lot of them have been brought up with the understanding that your number one objective in life is to provide for your family. And in a sense, that was paramount. So they make their decisions based on that as opposed to what's best for the company, what's best for the employees. It's gathering the goods for the family. I don't know if you've had any studies or experience with that. I have kids. <clears throat> so everybody that has children is an expert. Um, it's like why I'm so glad I'm not the dean of the education school. Because every parent has a kid that goes to school, and so therefore they're an edu expert on education policy. Um, I haven't done studies on that particular question, but I have thoughts about the, pro the issue of self before team, self before corporation, self before community. For probably two generations in the United, well, the United, going back to our founding, <clears throat> the United States has been somewhat different than most other countries in an emphasis on the individual. Our sort of the moral stories, the Horatio Alger stories, are about the rugged individualist. Um, and so we emphasize that in American culture. Uh, and that's important. The stories that, <clears throat> excuse me, that we tell ourselves and our children matter. But there's also been a change in the last, say, two generations of parenting, where, and this goes back to my bus riding story, our children today are told by parents, schools, the system, that they're special, that they're the most important person there is. I might tick some people off here by going on a little bit on a limb. Um, I think that's true for some people. Most people aren't special. There's seven billion people on this planet. Everybody's special within their family. Everybody's special within their small community. But we have hundreds of thousands, millions of small communities that many of them look like others. <clears throat> if every individual of the seven billion people on Earth believes they are the most important person on Earth, we're doomed. What enabled 
humanity, if you talk to evolutionary psychologists, they'll say, you know, like, what happened? Well, something changed along the way that there were groups of individuals that genetic is probably an interaction, it's sort of a G by E gene environment interaction. We could talk about this, it's complicated. But where groups all of a sudden realized altruistically, they would put the interest of others before their own. In our country, in our society, we've moved away from that. You know, John F. Kennedy gave that great speech. Uh, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Well, we should say that every day, you know, but we don't. Now, there's good reasons for it. Um, I think that our, some of our people in our education systems and uh, social psychologists occasionally get the causal arrow backwards. Self-esteem is a good example. Self-esteem matters a ton, but telling kids you're awesome when they're not doesn't build self-esteem. It builds anxiety. It builds insecurity, like his kid knows, I'm not awesome. Why is he telling me I'm awesome? I'm supposed to be awesome. I've got to be awesome, but I'm not awesome. And they get stuck. So you know, I think that we need to really think through resiliency. Our students today at the University of Virginia and all other universities like the University of Virginia, students today are less resilient than they were 25 years ago. It's a, it's a profound challenge for us as educational, education providers and educational leaders. But, you know, so it's an issue. It's a problem. Uh, business in particular. Other question. We'll yeah. come over here. And then, oh, you, well, he's got the microphone. I got the microphone. And then we'll come to you. Next. <laughs> uh, as someone that's old and uh, uh, with some background in family systems theory, mm -hmm. uh, I, I've been interested as you move more toward issues of character and things like that as opposed to the numbers mm -hmm. you were talking about. Uh, what did you find... Uh, characterize leaders in terms of character, self-differentiation, things like that. You're starting to get into that. Yeah. But uh, can you say something more about that? Yeah, so character is tough. You know, and so in, this, in the studies that we've done to this state, the book and the papers that lead up to this, we talk around it because we don't have measuring character. It turns out, like, um, is Kelly Sauls here? No. So she's the director of admissions for the Batten School. And we talk all the time, character, character, character. And she's like, I know, I know, but how do you measure it? You know, how do you screen for it? It's very difficult. One area, values, is another way we could think about this. And it's interesting, it shows up in the difference between male and female leaders. Now, we don't have data directly on values, but we do have some behavioral differences. Um, on average, men and women leaders look about the same. We don't have a lot of data. There aren't as many women female leaders as we would need to be really confident in a few claims. But they basically look the same, with one exception. There's about 25 leaders over the last 130 years that do not value human life. And we know they don't value human life because they don't value their own people's lives nor their neighbors' lives. They view human life as simply a resource to be expended, like diesel fuel or gasoline. Stalin, Mao, Khomeini, Lopez, there's about 25 of them. There are no females in that group. None, zero, no women. Now, <clears throat> my uh, colleagues who are critics say, well, of course not. So, so these people are basically sociopathic. Uh, if you look at the literature on sociopathy, somewhere between 2 and 4% of the general population are sociopathic. Of that small percentage, 90%, we don't have great data on this, but it's presumed to be our male. So we shouldn't be surprised that there are no women there. 
Um, but those are it's a different set of values. The character issue, that's something to you know to drive on hard, but we don't have good data there yet. Wow. Question over here. Yeah, this oh, is just our, our final question. one. Yep. Oh. That's high pressure. Uh, my, I, I'm going to take off from the values because I was actually going to ask that, but I want to make the connection in some ways to culture, which I know is probably going to get to the things that you, that relying on data lets you, we have sort of instinctive things about culture. But I'm curious about connecting the values question to culture and the ways in, and also thinking, if I understand what you're saying about leaders, it's the getting things done, going back to your first comment, and you said, made the point about things that are measured, that what's different mm -hmm. about things like athletics. But there was, the what to measure has a values component to it. Absolutely. And a cultural values component to it. So I wonder how you, like, this is great, but I feel like you hit almost a wall at that point, sort of, so because how do you separate out that sort of cultural values piece in the issue of what are you, what things do you get done? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I'm glad you asked it. So, um, and the, I don't have a good answer. Okay, in the sense of a positive answer being able to say, well, these cultures do this or those cultures do that. <clears throat> what we can do is, on the international level, we can see there are countries that are different, that they, that they have a set of values, or they choose leaders of a particular type systematically that are different than other countries. Now, as I was a graduate student coming up, you know, I'd point out some of these differences, and my professor would say, that's not culture, we can't measure it, don't worry about it. <laughs> But I disagree with that. We can point out, no, these countries are different. What's different? Um, risk acceptance. There's cultural aspect to this, too, and it shows up. So normally the way in, in this book, and we talk about it, I characterize risk acceptance or disinhibition as the willingness to use force against your neighbors. But in the, there's other ways. So um, Jose Ferrer, who was the president of Costa Rica in the late 1940s, early 50s, uh, he comes up in our data, crazy high risk acceptance. But Costa Rica is not involved in any military disputes, no wars. So we go back, and I didn't know anything, frankly, I didn't know anything about Costa Rica. I was like, wow, God, the data says there's something weird about this guy. The data is useful in that sense. So we go back and we look closely. Costa Rica is surrounded by hostile neighbors. Costa Rica is poor. So what did most of those countries in that setting do in Latin America, Central America in that period? Well, they took on a great power. Patron, the United States, and they ended up adopting the cultural mores and values of the United States of a particular business elite. Costa Rica says, we don't want to do that. So how are we going to protect ourselves? Ferrer says, get rid of the military. People are like, whoa, you can't do that. <laughs> he says, no, disband the army. We will, put in, we will have no military. And they don't to this day. Costa Rica has no army. That's the way they defend themselves. It's very Martin Luther King-ish. Uh, in the sense of passive resistance, that if you invade the one country on earth that has decided to not arm themselves in their defense, it says more about you than it does about us. And so that's a, that's a cultural, I would say that that's a, an, a wedge into to be able to start the conversations. What our data enable us to do really well is point to the, the individuals and countries and regions that are different. And it then says, asks us to interrogate our own values and to say, why are these people different? What's different about them? Why did they make those choices different? But we can't have those conversations until we accept for ourselves that individual people and their values really do make a difference. So I guess we don't get to have any more questions. I'm so I just, sorry. I'm I was on so a roll. Sorry. I was really enjoying myself. <laughs> Please help me thank Dean Stam.
please accept this gift on behalf of Thank Lifetime you. Learning and the Alumni Association. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. This is Appreciate great. it. This is Can great. you tell them I'll be happy to stick around if people want to? Please do. And he'll be signing books right over here. So. Um.